Over the past year, thanks to the strange realities of what I call the Rona, grocery stores and their hardworking staffs have rightly been recognized as essential. And while I love my meal kit service and am grateful it's now easier than ever to get items delivered, supermarkets and corner bodegas are things I just don't ever see going away. If you've ever inadvertently started to run low on toilet paper, you know what I'm talking about. But the two small town stores we're going to visit today, on opposite ends of central Texas, don't sell slabs of meat or have aisles dedicated to rice or face washes. The hours they keep can also hardly be described as regular. Yet, they help bridge the past of the communities they serve to our present and provide spaces for fellowship that I'd argue are essential for different but important reasons. I'm Evan Stern, and this is Vanishing Postcards. Before today's show, I want to take a moment to let my friend, author, and paranormal expert Ryan Sprague tell you about his podcast, Somewhere in the Skies. When I was 12 years old, I saw something in the sky I couldn't explain. And I've been searching for answers ever since. And I'm inviting you on that search with me every week on the Somewhere in the Skies podcast. With special guest interviews, case history, and audio docs, we ask the tough questions when it comes to UFOs, the paranormal, and the unexplained. New episodes drop every Monday through the E1 Podcast Network. Available wherever you get your podcasts and at somewhereintheskies.com. Thanks, Ryan. Now let's get back to the show. Some places just have a certain draw to them. I'm privileged enough to have traveled the world, and yet I always find myself coming back to the hill country. I'm not alone in this. Waylon and Willie famously immortalized this region by singing of fleeing the successful life to Lukenbach, Texas, a tiny town with little more than a general store and dance hall. It's been years since I've been to Lukenbach, and here on the surface it looks much as it always has, but when it comes to getting back to the basics, no instinctively I have to go a bit further. And today, standing on the banks of the Llano River, off a remote back road in the hamlet of Castell, No, I've happened upon something different. I'm surrounded by posto, chirping birds and cicadas, and feeling the water drift over my toes can see why, despite the threat of Comanche raids and unforgiving climate, a group of German settlers once saw in this spot the potential for utopia. It was a a group of socialistic free thinkers in Germany. They came over here, they were aristocrats, they came over here and tried to create a socialist-type environment, and, and they did. Leningrad down the river, Bettina down the river, and Castell. Castell's the only one that survived. Randy Lefesti came from these people and grew up right here on a ranch that's been in his family's hands since 1851. And when I asked him why this picturesque village near the border of Llano and Mason counties is the only one of these settlements left, he credits his lineage. Because it was, it was my great 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 grandfather, and he was a tough old sob. I don't know Randy well enough to tell how tough an sob he is, but he definitely isn't a socialist. In addition to a decades-long career in cattle and real estate, he dabbled in Republican politics 
is vocal in his disdain for Austin liberals, and proudly shows me a photo of himself with George W. Bush. But he's clearly following in his grandfather's footsteps, as he's almost single-handedly given this once-dying community a new lease on life. This was a ghost town. Sold all the properties around here. We now have eight bed and breakfast. This place is boom town. Everybody just has fun. Population is six. That's it. We're sitting in the shade at a picnic table in front of the Castell General Store. It was built in the late 20s and sat a bit further up the road before Randy bought it, painted it yellow, and moved it to this bluff above the river back in 2002. But historical purists should hold their huffing and puffing because everything about this place just seems right. They've got bait, tackle, burgers, a stock cooler of cold beer, and the spot's just honest and peaceful. Though Randy tells me the crowds can come out here in force. We have goat cook-offs, we have chili cook-offs, we have gumbo cook-offs, we have live music. Like our biggest event is Testicle Festival. There's 500 people come out here and have a ball, or two. And how did the Testicle Festival get started? I dreamed it up when I was, when I was castrating calves. Strangely though, the Testicle Festival actually isn't even what's gotten the Castell store the most attention. Okay, Cockaroo, my girlfriend and I were in Cabo San Lucas. We saw a rooster in a bar. I said, I need a rooster for the store. She goes to Kerrville and buys me this $5 rooster. Have him over here and he's running around. She raised him from a chick. Had a Billy Bass laying there, those things that flop around and play music. He went over and pecked on the red button jumped on Billy Bass and started having sexual relations with him. You can Google Castell Rooster and see videos. So newspapers, magazines, TV stations, Houston, Dallas, Austin, they all came out here. Hundreds and thousands of people would come out here and see my rooster perform like 20 times a day. So all these people came here. I did nine real estate deals directly related to that that made 252000 so the moral to the story is, if you want to be successful, you got to have a big rooster. At this, he leads me inside the store, takes me to the back, and points to the top of a shelf. And there's Cockaroo right there. That is Cockaroo. That's Cockaroo right there. Oh my goodness. Yeah. See, I've, I've seen all sorts of taxidermy in my days, but this might be the very first rooster I have seen. Oh, that's probably the first one. Well. Who knows if Cockaroo is the first stuffed rooster in the world, but I'm sure he's the only one mounted on top of an electronic singing bass, and it warms my heart to see these two lifelong friends united in death. And he tells me that Cockaroo's passing did not go without notice. Here's an obituary of Cockaroo when he died. It was in the paper. I mean, we're written up in all kinds of magazines. Here's, a, here's another world-famous rooster dies in Castell. The memorial reads, Cockaroo, Randy LaFesti's world-famous rooster from Castell, was found unresponsive in his cage Friday morning, June 26, 2009. He was rushed to the taxidermist, but efforts to revive him were unsuccessful. It then states that a wake will be held at the Castell General Store where Cockaroo will be remembered. 
rooster gumbo will be served from 5 p.m. until we run out. Don't worry, it's not Cockaroo. Turns out, though, this place is actually well-suited for a wake because, on occasion, it doubles as a church. We have church here once a month. We call it Drinking with Jesus. We have Bloody Marys, mimosas, and we have music, and we have a real good preacher. I mean, we had church last week. It was standing room. Circling back towards the front porch, we stop by a nook, and Randy shows off a T-shirt featuring the town's slogan. See, we have T-shirts. Like, right here, this one are our best-selling T-shirts. Populations, seven. Our town is so small, we don't have a town drunk, so we take turns. Thinking of the wine cellars and high-end clothing shops I'd seen on Fredericksburg's Main Street a few days ago, I can't help but smile. This is what Lukenbach must have been like 50 years ago, but Randy insists it's superior. I think it's better than Lukenbach because we got the Lano River. I go down there every evening. I've got a bar of soap and shampoo on a rock. And I go down there and take a bath every evening. I took one last night. It ain't pretty. But I'm by myself and watch the sun go down. Might have, might have a little more teeny to go with it. But having seen what's happened to other corners of the hill country, I gotta ask if he's worried about mass tourism trickling its way up. But he assures me that while he's gotten a few B&Bs up and running, he and the folks around here are committed to keeping things quiet and how they like it. There's still older Germans here that come in here and speak German. And they still have the same work ethic. They don't drive fancy cars. They may be living on a $5 million ranch, and they, but they still live their lifestyle. I've had four different people come here from California. And I said, this is a small, tight-knit German community you need to go to Kerrville or Marble Falls. And I, I, I could have sold them real estate. I didn't do it. It's probably discrimination, but I don't care about it. I discriminate against Californians. He told me earlier he can always tell where people are from, but I think I'll hold off on revealing for now that I actually keep an apartment in Manhattan. Yet, he insists the place is friendly. Oh. Like, we give people gas, we give people everything. So it shows up here and they don't have any money or something. I say, you just go back to Houston and send me a check. We do it all the time. I mean, like, our ice machines, we don't have locks on them. We trust people. They come back or they'll lay $5 in there. I mean, it's just, just a nice place. I learned a long time ago, if you treat people nice, it's going to be nice. To be fair... Randy has been nice to me. And handing me his card, which is captioned Castell General Store, home of the big cock, it's clear he doesn't think this is the last time we'll be exchanging words. Yeah, you come here. Nobody comes here once. They come back. That's my job. Oh, I'm coming back. As I said earlier, the country around here just has a certain draw. I'm going to take a quick break to tell you about a podcast I think my fellow history lovers and true crime addicts should all be listening to. It's called Crimes of the Centuries and is the brainchild of award-winning reporter Amber Hunt and my friends at the Obsessed Network. Each week, Amber takes a deep dive sharing stories of crimes that created nationwide headlines that you've probably never heard of, like 
Jazz Age Thrill Killers, a homicidal grandmother, or the murder that brought together Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr as lawyers for the defense. Crimes of the Centuries rediscovers the true crime stories that shocked the nation. Cases so unbelievable that we thought we'd never forget them, but somehow did. Until now. You can hear these stories today by finding Crimes of the Centuries wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get on with the show. The town of Ledbetter sits roughly an hour east of Austin and about 60 years behind it. Built on Blackland Prairie near the top of Fayette County, speeding by this town's five-building Main Street on Highway 290 will probably take you all of 15 seconds. And when I asked Christine Jervis to describe this community of roughly 70 souls, she cut straight to the chase. It's a little town that's just almost evaporated. If you talk about anybody in the area to somebody else in the area, better watch it, because they're probably related to somebody that you're talking about. <laughs> Settled by German and Czech farmers, like many places, this was a town whose fortunes came and went with the railroad. Christine tells me that where the highway now sits was once an 18-room hotel and large depot, but after the nearby town of Giddings was able to establish itself as an intersection, most of the business picked up and moved nine miles west. The train ceased stopping here back in the early 50s and ended service altogether in 1979, but the old-timers around here still speak of them. They uh, took up the track in 1987, and when they did that, they did it because they were going to widen this and make four lanes, which they did. And the, the track is not there, but people still from a long time ago, they say, well, you go across the tracks and then you go so and so. And so some people will ask directions to, of somebody that really isn't thinking clearly about that. And they'll come back and they'll say, I've gone so many miles and I haven't found a track yet. <laughs> and so then we have to redirect them. Memories don't seem to die easily in Ledbetter, but that's exactly what makes this no-stoplight town remarkable. I'm sitting with Christine and her 40-something daughter, Robin, at a table in the Sturmer store, the grocery and cafe run by their family for six generations since 1890. A large, two-storied edifice of whitewashed wood, I'm told the space we're talking in had once been the local saloon. Taken in the oak floors, Worrying antique fans, carved bar, and original Coca-Cola signs, I half expect Mary Stewart Masterson to show up and offer me a plate of fried green tomatoes. Born in 43, Christine's earliest recollections here date to the post-war years, and the picture she paints is one of a rural South lost to the ages. And on the front porch, there were a couple of benches like the one out there, and uh they would have a bunch of people that would congregate in the mornings and have their soda water or get chewing tobacco or whatever, and they would sit out there on the porch, and they, the black people spoke German. And so that was because of the people they worked for, and they, they learned it. I mean, from little on, they, they knew how to speak German. Lamentably, however, as was the day's practice, she informs me that the saloon itself was segregated, and later shows me an old lattice partition that was used to keep the space divided. When I ask if she remembers any of this, she tells me her uncle Ernst had closed down the bar area sometime before she was born 
converting the space to a feed room, and devoting all of his energy to the adjoining store, where she was put to work from the start. My big job of the Sturmer store was killing flies because they didn't have screen doors. And in the 50s, polio was rampant. And uh, they weren't sure how it was spread, but they felt like the flea flies might have something to do with it. And so that was my big job, was killing flies. And I had a fly swatter and I killed a lot of flies. Hearing this, Robin interjects to tell me this occupation is something of a rite of passage in the family. Growing up, I mean, I was just always in and out of the store and, um, you know, weekends, it was just something that, that we would come in and, and hang out and visit or um, whatever. And then as I got older, um, this was my first job. And so uh, I remember killing flies too. And I was told, your mom killed flies, your grandmother killed flies, so now it's your turn to kill flies. <laughs> and I remember standing out on the front porch killing flies. When Robin was a girl, the Sturmer was managed by her great-great-aunt, who'd taken over following Ernst's death in 1966. After her, it was eventually handed over to Christine's mother, Lillian, whom they tell me kept the doors open six days a week for nearly 30 years. From 1986 or thereabouts till she died in um, 15, January 8th of 15, uh, that Thanksgiving before is when she was pretty much, she didn't come back to the store after that. And how old would she have been um, when she had to step back? 97. Well, she, she was 96, and on Christmas Day, she turned 97. Small but energetic, Lillian chased out a colony of rats and reopened the saloon side as a soda fountain serving ice cream, sundries, and opinions at the register. We used to sell cigarettes, and I remember um, people would come in and get cigarettes, and she would kind of talk to them, especially, you know, some of the, the older people that, that were you know, regular customers, and she, she cared about them. And, you know, you really shouldn't be doing this. And they, they knew when they came in they were going to get a little lecture. A devoted Democrat, she kept a painting of LBJ that still hangs on the store's wall for all to see. I'm told she said what she meant, meant what she said, and was never easily flustered. Granny was here by herself. Here by herself. It was a rainy day, and this man came in, and he had a gun in his hand, and he was telling her to get the money out of the cash register and give it to him. He kept saying, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And she says, well, I'm hurrying as fast as I can. And she put it in the bag, and then the telephone rang. So the phone kept ringing. Well, there was a phone right by the, the cash register, so he thought that was the phone. So he pulled that out, and the phone kept on ringing because it was a different line at the very back. And he didn't have the gumption to know that. And so anyway, he got in a big hurry. And he had somebody uh, in a getaway car outside. And uh, so he, he left and he told her not to, not to call anybody, not to do anything. She says, well, I don't think you're going to get away with this because I don't think God wants you to. And <laughs> he says, well, you don't call anybody. And so she called the post office and the Lee County Sheriff's Department caught him within just three hours or something like that. And they'd spent about $3 out at a little country store someplace. Yeah. <laughs> and what was really bad about that was his grandmother had raised him and she was one of our customers. And she was so embarrassed that he would do that. Of course, he was addicted to something. 
But, you know, he didn't even have the gumption to know that this was not a real lucrative place to go. <laughs> you were going to do that. And, and with a gun, you know, so it was a whole lot. After a while, we get up, and they lead me over to the store side in the next room. They still sell hardware, some necessities, and a few antiques, but most of it seems devoted to displaying items handed down through this family's history. Accordions, violins, tools, old toys. Christina and Robin tell me they think of this more as a working museum than enterprise. I see what they mean when I'm confronted by a wall of shoes and rack of dresses from the 20s in what had been a ladies ready to wear store upstairs. It's a vintage shopper's dream, but they tell me they don't plan on selling much of what I see because, like the store itself, this is heritage. You know, they want to auction it off, they want to buy it all, and, you know, well, then what? What will we have for our fun? <laughs> That's what I feel about, uh, you know, and, and it, it maybe someday down the road, you never know what, what's going to happen. But I just feel like it's sharing something that is special to us, and, and maybe other people enjoy it, and, and they do express that. Earlier, I attempted to ask if, after Lillian died, they thought of closing, but Christine immediately cut me off, saying that's never been a question. Robin's three daughters help out here when they're open and often share with her entrepreneurial ideas for when it's their turns to take over. She confesses this is work, but can't imagine life without it. That said, I ask if she's ever dreamed of a life beyond Ledbetter. When I was growing up, I always wanted to move away, and I had grand plans to... to moved to the city and uh and she talks about that often too that she's going to be in yeah yes i was going to go to new jersey i think that was because bon jovi was in new jersey (laughs) that was really it that was the only draw (laughs) and then um as as i got older and experienced the city and and everything it's like you know it's just different but i still had a home to come back to, you know, and, and, and the, over time, obviously, the, the family has changed, but it's always been family. She used to get embarrassed when I would tell people about the store, because that's my favorite thing, is visiting with people coming in. Just because you're mom, we <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but no, but, but usually she would, oh, well, Mother, you don't need to tell them all that. You don't need to tell them all that. Well, I have walked in, and she's telling them the very same things that she said I didn't have to tell them. <laughs> and they're eating it up, and she's enjoying doing it. So evidently it wasn't such a bad thing after all. <laughs> right now, the store only operates Fridays and Saturdays and is actually closed altogether due to COVID. But having made it through 1918, two wars and a depression... Christine, Robin, and the girls will be back to serving banana splits and floats once it's safe again. Ledbetter may be evaporating, and the tracks have been gone a long time. But 130 years into its run, the Sturmer store seems here to stay. I had so much fun working on this episode, and we'll start by thanking Randy for generously showing me around. His Castell store is easily one of the coolest places I discovered in piecing together this season. The burger I had was delicious. 
I bought the t-shirt. And if you're interested in going, I encourage you to check out CastellGeneralStore.com for more info. I also thank Christine and Robin for opening the doors of the Sturmer store and greeting me with freshly baked sweet rolls. As of this taping, they're still closed out of caution and to make some AC repairs. But they'll be back when the time is right, and you can check out their Facebook page for announcements and contact info. Finally, I thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard and haven't already, please subscribe. It helps us grow and guarantees you will never miss an episode. As always, if you know someone in your life who might enjoy what we're up to, it would mean a great deal if you could take a second to text them and share this episode. For photos and more info, please find us on Instagram or visit vanishingpostcards.com where we'd love to hear from you if you have any stories you care to repeat or know of any places we should consider visiting. Otherwise, know that I'm wishing you well and hope you'll join us next time for more Vanishing Postcards. Postcards.